I'd like to invite you to take a, a Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We're going to be just looking at the first nine verses of uh, Exodus 34. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you'll know that we left off at a place where Moses had made an impassioned plea from the Lord. Maybe you remember what that plea was. Uh, Moses had said that he, he wanted to see the Lord. He wanted to know the Lord in His essence. He wanted to know the Lord for who He truly is. And so he said these words. He said, please, show me your glory. And you may recall that the Lord had said that the very thing that Moses had asked for, that he would do. And uh, here's, here's how he put it. He, he said that he, the Lord, would pass before Moses and that he would proclaim his name. He would proclaim the name of the Lord, whatever that meant. <laughs> and uh, he, he doesn't give that uh, at that point. So that's the dialogue that we heard last week between Moses and the Lord. Well, this week, again, between the same two characters, between Moses and the Lord, we actually get to see this happen. Uh, God, with Moses as his audience, in response to Moses' uh, request, he proclaims the name of the Lord. And even though... Think back to, to last week. There were a couple of things that we, we saw right at the end of chapter 33 that, in which the Lord was saying to Moses, yes, I'm going to do exactly this, but, but there's a limit there, Moses, because you can't handle me in my fullness. Uh, and he was, he was saying that you are sinful, and therefore you, you can't handle all of it. Now, that was last week, and certainly as we see it carried out this week, that's there. But really what's emphasized this week is not, it's not the limitations. The emphasis is all on God revealing who He really is. Uh, and I'll, I'll just say, uh, this, is, this is true for each one of us here, that this should be a request. That request that Moses made, it should be a request that we, each one of us, has in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, you know, Steve Lawson, who is now connected with uh, Ligonier, uh, he, he says this in one of his books that we've got out there on the card. He says that in the early years with Ligonier Ministries, uh, when they were just in the process of developing the vision and the strategy for the ministry, that there was a time when they brought a, a consultant on to help them out with that process. And, and uh, the consultant at one point posed a question to the one who started uh, Ligonier Ministry, to, to R.C. Sproul. And he said this, he, or he asked this, what is the greatest need of people in the world? And R.C. Sproul replied without, without hesitation, the greatest need is that people would know who God is. And then the, the consultant asked a follow-on question, and it was this, 
what is the greatest need of people in the church? What do you think R.C. Sproul replied? He replied in this way. He said, the greatest need of people in the church is to know who God is. And you know, the, the point that he was making there was that it doesn't matter whether you're an avowed atheist or you've been walking with the, with the Lord for 30 years. It doesn't matter. Your greatest need through and through is to know who the Lord is uh, in order for you to understand what's going on in this world around us, why it is the way it is. In order for you to understand why you are the way you are, you need an answer to that question. Who really is the Lord God? It's something that never loses its importance. It's something that we can never be at a point at which we've gained it sufficiently, in which we know enough. And so as we go through this chapter, that's really what it's dealing with, uh, this, this uh, question, who is God? Because that's what the Lord is going to answer Moses with, and it's something that each one of us need. Now again, it's uh, Exodus chapter 34, the first nine verses there. This is God's Word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You uh, that You have revealed Yourself in Your Word in the ways that You have. At the same time, Lord, we've got to acknowledge 
our own poverty in that knowledge of who you are. Uh, Lord, we, we know if we go through your word and we recognize what we are told and we look at the world around us and, and recognize our own lives within it, we know that this is important. We know that we need to know you. And yet, uh, we often fall short in our desire. And we often fall short in our really seeking to understand. As so we pray this morning that you would take hold of us, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and that you would help us in a, in a far greater way to know you and therefore to live differently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there was a there was a series of four or five books that uh, just a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, that uh, we were reading within our family. I read to the kids, um, and you know, I, I, the, the kids loved these books, and I, I think it was because they were so full of of mystery. You you never knew there was a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. You never knew exactly what was going to happen, how things were going to turn out. Now, of course, that sort of became the joke in our family because, as the kids often noted. We talked about this, that they did, in fact, know how things were going to, to turn out. They, they knew, ultimately, that this certain group of characters in the book who were the, the, the good side, you might say, that they were going to win in the end, and that total calamity was going to be averted. But I think, even with that knowledge, what made the, the book so engaging was that each book revolved around a riddle, a riddle that had to be solved. And, and the tension in the storyline as you went through the book was that if the riddle wasn't solved, then all the levers of power would fall into the hands of this one man in this book or this series of books. It was Mr. Curtin, and he was the evil villain. And as a result... The sense was that all civilization would be doomed. And so the resolution to the riddle was paramount. It was really important. And that, that grabbed and that held the attention of the kids throughout. Now, I, I know that as we go through God's Word, that you may not expect to find riddles in God's Word. Uh, now, you may be able to think of one here or there. I can think of one, in fact, it's, it's very clear. Uh, but it's a small storyline. But right at the heart of the storyline for the Bible, beginning to end, you wouldn't expect to find a riddle. But in fact, that is what we find, that God provided what we might call a riddle for the, for the people of the Old Testament. Uh, and it's in this passage that we're looking at this morning in which we find that riddle most clearly, I think, articulated. You know, I taught a Sunday school class. It was two or three years ago. A number of people here were a part of that, that class in which we uh, went through the entire Bible beginning to end, and we traced the overall storyline of the Bible. It's all connected. It's all pointing in in one place, we went into each book 
of the Bible and, and, and briefly looked at how that book was connected to the overall storyline, both Old Testament and New. And uh, in, in putting that together, originally I, I used a study that was, it was done, there are a couple of books on it by Mark Deaver. Mark Deaver is a, a Reformed Baptist pastor in the, the D.C. area. And so I used that to assist us uh, and Mark Deaver calls out this passage, this was the first time I had really recognized it, uh, as being a starting point for that study because he said it's central to what the Lord is working out all the way through the Bible. Uh, and he said ultimately that the main point of it all, the main point of the Bible itself is the answer to this riddle. So very similar to what I was describing with these books. If we don't get the answer to, to this riddle, then we miss it all. Uh, and we don't want to do that. Now here's what he meant. If we look at our passage where the Lord proclaims His name, uh, we find it there in verse 6. He says, and I'm going to read this again, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, he probably means there are thousands of generations. Of forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so, so Deaver, after quoting that, he asked the question, how could that be? How can, how can God forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin and yet by no means clear the guilty? How can you have on one side forgiveness and on the other side condemnation for the guilty you know it's what it's what people call a non sequitur i think i'm saying that correctly it means the second statement can't logically follow from the first and yet the lord says that it does when it comes to his character expressed to his people and you know this is something that uh, we see as you go through the entire Old Testament that an answer to this, this problem, this riddle, begins to emerge. In fact, if you look back, we can see it even before this point. But it begins to emerge. It's, it's fuzzy at first, and then it becomes more and more clear until finally we get to the New Testament, and that's where the, the whole story turns upon one person, one individual who is himself the answer to the entire story. He, he's the one who, in this passage, really enables God to be God as He revealed Himself to this people. And that means, of course, to us as well. Uh, remember what Moses requested here. It was this, Show me your glory to God. Show me who you really are in all of your essence. You know, I used, uh, actually yesterday morning with, with our family, I used this example. It's kind of a crass example, so excuse it. But uh, 
when one of the kids gets a, a gift, let's say for Christmas or something like that, and it's, it's, it's a big gift, it's an important gift, they're excited about it, this is the thing, what do they do with it? They can't wait. They, they need to immediately open it up and kind of spread it out on the floor and, and look at it and begin to understand what it is and, and how it works and turn it over and over and see how things fit together uh, and understand it thoroughly. They, they want to know it. They want to use it. And really, in a sense, they want to immerse themselves in it. That's what Moses wanted here but not with something that was temporary and not with something that uh, would ultimately be of, of no use, but quite the opposite. Uh, he wanted to know the God of glory. And he wanted to immerse himself in the God of glory so that he could ultimately live to the glory of God. And so the Lord answered his request by revealing himself. You know, it's, it's been said that the most important aspect about who we are is what we think about God. Now, here's the danger. If we don't know God, and therefore we don't think high thoughts about God, but we think lowly about God, then we will never live for His glory. And out of that, we will live a wasted life. And that has to be the truth. If we're not living at all for the glory of God, we will live a life that ultimately, eternally, is of no value. On the other hand, if we think high thoughts about God... If we seek to know God and to understand God and to grow in our knowledge of Him, then we will live out of His glory. And our lives truly will count for time and eternity. And so, knowing God is, is foundational. It's critical for each one of us. Uh, it's, it's a prerequisite to living in a way that glorifies God. And so it's that important. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is my life going to count? And that's what this passage is about. God revealing His glory to us. I will say, though, that as we go through this, and we'll see this, uh, we don't have the same limitations that Moses had uh, in the same way. You know, we can fill in the answer to that riddle that's presented here in uh, chapter 34. Uh, we can see God. We can know Him with a wonderful nearness. And so what I want us to see, first of all, there's just going to be a couple of things, but first of all is I want us to see the glory of God revealed in His perfections. And another word that you can use for that is in, in His attributes. We're going to look at how God really answered in, in a direct way uh, Moses' request. And so what do we have in this passage? We've got Moses... Uh, he's been told, he's been given directions to uh, make, to carve out two new stone tablets, to take them in his hands and to go up to the top of Mount Sinai alone. No one else there with him. 
And what do we see? We, we see the Lord come down in a cloud to meet together with Moses. Now, if, if you've been with us and we've been going through Exodus together, this should sound familiar to you. Uh, it's happened before. But this time, there is a difference. This is a picture of renewal. You know, the people, the people that, that Moses himself has identified himself with. And he said, I'm together with these people and they are together with me. This people has sinned against the Lord. They've fallen way short. And we, we, we saw what happened as a result. Before, Moses came down the mountain with the two stone tablets that had the law written on them, and they were broken. He smashed them at the base of the mountain. That represented the covenant itself, the relationship with the Lord being broken uh, by their sin. Yet here we go again with Moses at the instruction of God, going back up the mountain to meet with God. New tablets in hand. And God says right there at the beginning, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, tablets which you broke. You know, what Moses himself is enacting here with the Lord is already a statement of who the Lord is, the character of God. This is really... I think it's a hint or a precursor to what we're going to see in a moment. Uh, how, how comforting is it that when you think about your God, that when you've, you've sinned and you know that you've sinned, you've fallen short, you've fallen away, you have rebelled against the Lord, how important is it that you can know that He is a God of renewal, and He is a God of restoration. You know, Jeremiah speaks about this, this restoration uh, in the book of Lamentations. Uh, he says, remember my affliction and my wanderings? You know, this is someone who has sinned, someone who has wandered away from the Lord. And he says, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, this is what it means for the sinner. And I'm talking about the sinner here, the sinner who belongs to the Lord, the sinner who has returned to the Lord, who has come to the Lord by faith. This is what it means for that sinner to know the Lord and to know His perfections. Think about when you've fallen. Now, when you've wandered away, as Jeremiah put it here. How does it change things to know that the Lord is all about renewal and restoration? To know that even if everyone else fails you, and they will, that the Lord is faithful and that His mercies are without end. They are new every morning. You know, dealing with with depression in the U.S. is probably a multi-billion dollar industry. But for God's people, for those who really know Him, He is a God of renewal. And He is a God of restoration. And as Jeremiah says here, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What is hope? That's the opposite from 
depression. Therefore, we have hope. Now, we can, we can see from God's actions here with Moses uh, as he prepares the way for Moses to hear what's in verses 6 and 7 that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, I, want, I want us to notice that uh, even though Moses made his request and he said, show me your glory, he's asking to see God's glory. And I, and I think he was probably expecting to receive something, a, a, a vision, uh, some sort of visual picture. But notice what he receives instead. The Lord tells him his perfections. There, there's one commentator that said, instead of giving him a, a vision, giving him something visual, the Lord preaches a sermon to him. And so that's what we see here in the way that the Lord answered him. And, and he answered him in a way, if you look at verses 5 and 6, he answered him in a way that might seem a little bit strange to you. He said, as he had said that he would do before, uh, he said that he was going to proclaim the name of the Lord. And then in, in verse 6, uh, we see him do that. We see him proclaim his name. Now, what does that mean for him to proclaim the name of the Lord? It's really to, to amount, uh, announce who he is, to announce his, his character, his essence, and put it on display. Now, usually we, we use a name to distinguish between people. That's the primary use. But in the Bible, it's different. A name describes a person's true character. You know, I think we can get a taste of that in, in our world. Anybody that, uh, as a married couple, has tried to decide upon the name for a, a child that's come into their lives uh, probably has experienced this. The husband comes up with a name like Samuel. And his wife may say, no, not that name. You know, every time I hear that name, it reminds me of when I was in fifth grade. And it was this kid, Samuel, might even know, you know, first and last name, uh, who, was, who was always a bully. And he always tried to get the, get, get the kids to get us into trouble. And, and I was afraid of him. So no, not that name, not Samuel. You know, what's the problem here? Well, the name did exactly what it was supposed to. It spoke of the character of that person. And, a, and character can be bad or it can be good. Now, in this case, we're speaking about the name of the Lord. It's in that as good as you can get category. And so look at how Moses, or I'm sorry, how the Lord begins his proclamation. It's, it's with his special name, and it's repeated twice for emphasis. He says, the Lord, the Lord. Now, in most of our Bibles, it's, it's going to be in, in, in capital letters or maybe made to stand out in another way. Uh, this is who he is to his covenant people. It's the same name by which he revealed himself to Moses at, at the burning bush. Uh, the Lord, uh, we, we, we would say in Hebrew, Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, remember at the burning bush he said, I am that I am. In other words, out of this name, he is the one God who has always been and whoever forever will be. He is the God of both creation and the God of redemption. He's the God who made His people, 
And He is the God who saves His people. All of that in this name. That's what He begins with. Then listen closely to how the Lord describes Himself. Now, this must be, I I think, one of the most important statements in the Bible. It is either quoted or it's referred to in dozens of other places throughout the Bible. Uh, In verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, perhaps to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, you can write down each of those words, those phrases that describe the Lord. And you can begin to dig and look throughout the the Bible at different passages, and it'll begin to open up a wealth of who the Lord is saying that He is right here. In fact, um, if you want to dig into that further, there is a book on the book cart by Steve Lawson, and it has this name, Show Me Your Glory. Uh, if you want to uh, look at that, that, it's a wonderful place to, to dig in deeper. Uh, but remember the context. This is not merely a description that God is giving of Himself. This is a, a, a proclamation. Remember He said He was going to proclaim His name. It's kind of like what you would see back in the olden days with a, with a king. When he'd come into town, he'd have a herald there. And he would proclaim the king, in all of his magnificence. So that's what this is like. Yet it's different from that at the same time. It's different from a herald proclaiming his magnificence. Now, we could hear that from the Lord. Uh, We could hear a proclamation of how magnificent he is in and of himself, that he is infinite in being that He is all-sufficient, that He knows all things, that He is eternal and unchangeable and incomprehensible and everywhere present, almighty in power. We could go on and on and on. We could have heard that, but here, this is God proclaiming, and this proclamation of who He is is done in relation to a people, a people who have broken His covenant, who have rebelled against the Lord. And so the question here that's being answered is, who is He to them? Who is He to a people who are undeserving? And I think that's the context in which we need to hear this given. Because that's not that people. That's you. And that's me. That we are a people who are unforgiving. And He's come to us in our condition. And this is what He said to us. He said, I am merciful. I am compassionate. I am sympathetic. I care for you and I care about you in the very situation in which you find yourself at any point, whatever it is. He's like a parent that picks up a child that's fallen and and skin their knee, or or perhaps something worse. Like a parent that that carries the child when they are weak. Says that He is ever ready to help you in your need. 
He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. And don't miss this. There are three words here that are used for the wrongdoing that he forgives. There in in, in verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, the only real reason for this repetition, it appears, is to emphasize the magnitude of his forgiveness. He wants to leave no room for doubt about who he is, that he is a God who forgives and forgives and forgives. You know, Psalm 103, I think, calls this out. Where David said, he, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know how far that is? The east will never reach the west, nor the west the east. This is our God. This is His perfections to a people who are sinful. And doesn't it change things to to know that this is who we go to? To know that this is who our God is? You know, we can so easily begin to picture God in terms of the human relationships that we have. And, And I think there are times when that can be useful in a sense But in all human relationships, there's always a question mark there. You've experienced it. Everyone here, if you've lived certainly long enough, that you have had a person in your life that you have known that they're there for you. And yet when it came down to it, they failed you. Or even worse, you failed them. And that was it. And they were gone. But this is completely different. There's no question mark there. He is there for those who belong to Him. He is ever faithful. And when you come to experience this kind of love, it will change you. It has to change you. You know, uh, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, The Lord appeared to him, he's speaking about Israel, from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. No ifs, ands, or buts. He is forever faithful. And so first of all, we can see the glory of God that's revealed to us in His perfections. Secondly, we can see the glory of God revealed to us in His Son. Now this is where we get to the the how, you might say. This is where we we take this passage out of Exodus 34 and we place it into the bigger context of God's Word. Uh, And we continue to look and to see God and to know God in all of His glory. Uh, This is where we're reminded about what He has done for us in that area in which it seems impossible. You know, in going through God's perfections and His attributes, here in, in chapter 34, there is one glaring omission that we made, and it comes right there after the word but in verse 7. Now, he's already said 
the Lord is a God merciful, that He's gracious, steadfast love. He shows uh, faithfulness, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Then he goes on to say, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children and their children, children's children, to the third and fourth generation. That last part, we see it in a number of places. He's talking about sin and really how bad it is, the, 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 the continuing consequences of sin. We see it in our lives. Uh, we experience the sin of others, uh, perhaps our fathers, that echoes down again and again. But the question that we have before us is where that but is. Uh, it's the same question we asked before. How can the same God forgive and punish at the same time? And this isn't just the Israelites' problem. This is there for us as well because you and I are among the guilty. So this tells us that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And it really gives us the same picture of God that we see throughout the Bible, that He is just. And He upholds His justice, fully just, that He is holy. And in His justice, He must punish sin. And again, the riddle of the Old Testament. The answer to this comes as we continue through the Bible. And it comes in the form of a substitute for us. One that slowly emerges. Uh, I wonder if, if you can think of those passages in the Old Testament that show us this picture of one who ultimately will stand in for us as a substitute. Uh, when we get to Second Samuel, we, we read about David, who is the king. And we find that the Lord says that he is going to have, this is Second Samuel chapter 7, he is going to have a, a son who is also going to be a king, and he's going to bring a, a type of peace that will be with God's people forever. It will never fail them. And he will be a king after God's own name. Remember, we've been talking about what the name of the Lord means, after God's own name, and he will possess a kingdom. Then as we go further, we learn that his kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness and justice and that there will be no end we get into the books of the prophets we see that the the king is to be the anointed one the anointed one the what they call the messiah the one who will bring healing and salvation to a people and we learn that there is this exchange that will take place so that he even becomes a substitute for this people. And you go to Isaiah chapter 53 where it, it states it so clearly. But He, this King, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. means sin. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about it. What kind of king is this? 
Well, in this passage, it, it's made clear. He's, he's a king who is a servant to his people. He's one who cares about them. Who cares enough that he's prepared to sacrifice himself for them. He's ready to become their substitute. He's ready to stand in for the guilty. And of course, this picture becomes crystal clear as we move into the New Testament. And we proceed from Matthew uh, chapter 1, where we hear about this baby that comes into the, into, uh, the world. We hear about Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How? By stepping in as a substitute. goes on, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Who's stepping in? Who is able to step in and take the place of those uh, who have sinned grievously? It's God Himself who is stepping in. And this is the answer, of course, to our riddle. You know, all the way to the description that we heard about earlier. Think about it. The king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with all the people saying, this is at the heart of that that picture of the triumphal entry. Blessed is the king. All of this based upon the picture that we have in the Old Testament. This out of Zechariah. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That peace. That's something else that we see associated with this, this king. And most, most centrally, what is that peace all about? It's a peace that's brought between that people and the king who is a just God, who is a holy God, who must punish sin. And Jesus steps into the middle and takes upon himself that which is for those who have sinned, but he who is without sin steps in. So what is the answer here? What is the answer to the riddle? It's, it's this. The Son of God who is a king and He has a kingdom that contains all those people who have turned and followed Him, who have believed and come to Him by faith. All those who are experiencing peace with God and peace with one another and true righteousness. Who is this king? Well, he is a servant. He is a substitute. And he is just. As Romans chapter 3 tells us, all of this was to show his righteousness at the present time. That he might be just, yes, but at the same time, the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where we come in. That's where we're called to turn to Him and to trust in Him and to see Him in all of His glory. You know, Moses said, show me your glory. And what has God done all the way through the Bible? He's shown us His name. He's proclaimed His name. He said, this is who I am. But not just to anyone out there. This is who I am to you. Turn to me. Trust in me. Follow me. Receive me. And so as we come to Palm Sunday next week, we've got Easter as we look to the resurrection of Christ. We know that in between the two, 
we look in God's Word and we see that Christ went to the cross, but not for no purpose. He went to the cross for us and for our sins, that we might be together with Him. And we'll see next week what the results of that are as He rose from the dead and brought with Him His people. So again, the question, uh, who is God? Well, that's what we see revealed all the way through God's Word. We see who He truly is in all of His perfections, and most particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the giver of the gift, the one gift that you and I need. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for the offer of a gift that You've held out and all that is behind that gift. We thank You, Lord, that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You have given us all that we need in order to, to see ourselves and to recognize ourselves and recognize what we are like but to see that through the lens of recognizing first of who You are and what You are like and what You have done. We are a people that has a great need. You are a God who has addressed that need for us. Uh, Father, I pray that You would help us day in and day out to see You in that light and to live our lives, therefore, out of that knowledge of who You truly are. I pray that more and more we would have that heart along with Moses to say, show me your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.